the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Dixon. And I'm Trey Lawson. And we actually have a special guest with us today. Sir, introduce yourself. I am Michael Sean McGinnis, formerly That Godzilla Guy, currently Neo Monster Island. And I would like to welcome both of you and the audience to my gallery bar. <laughs> oh, there. Yeah. Cheers. 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 Slancha! <laughs> yep, yep. We are actually recording from Sean's studio slash bar today. And, I don't know, this is maybe the second most waste stuff been on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a higher caliber of, of uh, uh, libation. We're, we're trying to class show. up the joint around here. <laughs> De- definitely. Um, definitely higher class than the beer I usually get. Um, so, yeah. Sean is on with us today because we are taking a special look into one of his expert areas. That's right. Uh, we are, of course, going to go ahead and talk about uh, Midnight Suns Unlimited. Unlimited. Uh, number what is it? It's nine. Nine? The final issue, I believe. The, yes, it is the final issue before Midnight Suns. Who could imagine a premium multi-page um, magazine based on Midnight Suns would fail in the 90s? Right. Well, and so we we teased this last time that, that this is a grab bag episode. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, when you would you'd buy the poly bagged uh, sets of discount comics from the spinner rack, mm-hmm. you could see what the front comic was. You could see what the back comic was. You couldn't see what the middle comic was. Yeah, we teased this and, before. And so we told you we were going to do the Midnight Suns Unlimited, number mm-hmm. nine. And we told you we were going to do Power Man and Iron Fist 79. Yep. James, what's the issue in the middle? Well, I think Sean should tell us. It's his expert area. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Marvel Comics first issue of the Sage Saurian, the Atomic Huber Science Dinosaur, Godzilla. That's right. Versus S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> <laughs> Which really, we'll get there, but that kind of should have been the title of the whole run, is Godzilla versus S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But first, we're going to go ahead and talk about Midnight Suns Unlimited... Number nine, which I guess is going to be my summary. Okay. So, at the Statue of Liberty, masked figures are planting a device when they're interrupted by a figure with a skull ablaze. And no, it's, he doesn't have a motorcycle because this is 1945. This is the blazing skull. Achtung! Mein Gott! And after a fight with the Nazis, blazing skull is revealed to be reporter Mark Todd working for the Daily Globe. And you, you, you know they wanted to do Daily Bugle in here. You, yeah. You, you, you know, like, at the last minute, it seemed they had to change the Daily Globe. Well, so I, I wondered that, or was this some sort of veiled, like, Golden Age Superman riff? Yeah. So, Mark Todd believes he's coming upon a Nazi plot because it's 1945 Marvel Comics. Of course he has. Mm-hmm. And he ends up in tracking it down to London. 
Um, but on his way to London, we do get a little bit of recap of his uh, origin. Basically, he was working as a journalist in China and wandered into a cave where he found a race of skeleton people who gave him a mask, which um, I guess eventually became part of his face, but could also transform him into the Blazing Skull. Yeah, the, the, the original, the earliest of the Blazing Skull appearances, he wore a mask that had the appearance of being on fire, mm-hmm. and as the, the stories went on, they just decided, yeah, no, he turns into a guy with a flaming skull. And the amazing ability to be immune to fire. Yes. And that's it. Yeah, that's Until it. Until later. <laughs> yeah. But for right now, y'all, all the Nazis with flamethrowers, you just better watch yourself. He'll give your ankle such a gnawing. <laughs> <laughs> um, once in London, he runs upon um, Lord Fallsworth, who um, us Invader fans better know as Union Jack. There they fight a fire together and fight... A armored villain called the Iron Cross, which says this is now this is now retroactively before this. Obviously, Tony Stark told, stole the idea from right, right. yeah, because <laughs> he he looks like the 1960s Iron Man, but with you know a spike on the top because it's German. Oh, and a camera attached to his shoulder. Yes, <laughs> because he's capturing footage specifically for Hitler. And yes. like, but I just have to ask: Is the camera bulletproof? Because. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if people really realize the technology of that time. You just didn't like, oh, let me pull up my iPhone and <laughs> take footage. This is, you know, it's a craft. You're not just going to, I mean, ah, uh, I hate being comic book guy right now, but I'm just, okay, I'm, I'll leave it alone. I'll leave it alone. Well, evidently they knock it off of his shoulder in the fight. Because yeah. Because they then recover the footage. Yes. Which And it survives being knocked off of his shoulder and the fire and all the other, which... At that point, I, I would have expected the the film, even if it wasn't like nitrate, with, at which point they all would have died in a horrible explosion. <laughs> at the very least, I'd have expected it to melt from the heat of the fire. Yeah, but this is how we learn that the Nazis are using the transmitters as basically homing devices for their missiles. And uh, I, Blazing Skull decides he needs to go to the source here and actually parachute into Germany, where he is met by the destroyer. Uh, of course, the Destroyer has a reputation of possibly being a double agent. And that does seem to be the case when the Destroyer turns the Blazing Skull over to the Nazis, only for him to reveal later that he is not a traitor and to arrange for uh, the Blazing Skull's escape. And together, they ride around a motorcycle. This is how they justify the Ghost Rider connection, by the way. They badly justify <laughs> the Ghost Rider connection. <laughs> And they defeat Iron Cross together. Um, Blazing Skull returns to New York. Still not sure what was behind the whole Nazi plot until he hears an announcement on the radio about the masked raider. Who he realizes that's who he fought in the first couple of pages. And realizes that the actor playing the masked raider is in fact a Nazi agent sending secret messages to German agents inside the United States. And that there is a missile aimed right for the White House. Going to like a nice little cameo by FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt there. And again, um, the Blazing Skull steals a motorcycle. Uh, you get it, kids? You, you, you get it? And um, drives through the radio studio, basically through a few walls, and tosses the radio announcer, actor guy, out a window to his death, saying, I sure hope that's, that's the, the right, right guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably my favorite line of all time. 
Oh, crap, I just killed Jack Benny. (laughs) (laughs) And then he reroutes the missile using a stolen plane, which just luckily, luckily had the keys in it. And a full tank of gas. And a full tank of gas. Does he... Is part of his superpower knowing how to fly a plane? Because he is, I need to remind everyone, a reporter. (laughs) (laughs) And... He, 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 he's able to intercept the missile with the plane, parachuting just in time, returning as Mark Todd. Mark Todd, where were you the whole time? You missed out the whole big finale. And he's like, oh, well. And then winks at the camera. Yep. With the end in the secret substitution cipher yes. from the radio show. Yes. So I love this issue, but I feel I'm in the minority <laughs> here. <laughs> so I will say I appreciate the sort of tongue-in-cheek tone of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, has, it, it seems like it's aiming for something like The Rocketeer. Yeah. I feel like it was more along the lines of, hey, do you remember Spider-Man Noir from that really popular movie? Uh-huh. Can you do a garbage version of it? <laughs> well, this actually predates Spider-Man Noir by about a few decades, actually. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that shows what I know. So but it is written by Dan Slott. In fact, um, the... Which, 95, this would be an early one for him. Yeah, really early. But he had just got done writing Ren and Stimpy comics Right, because Ren and Stimpy was his first time writing Spider-Man. Yep, it's Dan Slott, writer, um, James Fry, artist. Inker <clears throat> is Andrew Popoy. Letter is Jim Novak. Colorist is Heroic Age Studios. And editor is Evan Skolnick. Well, who did the cover? Oh, that's Alex Ross. Yeah, that's an Alex Ross. See, cover. that's where all the money went to. Yes, yes. yes. Like this, the, when if, when you look at the cover, you're thinking, "Oh man, I remember when uh, Union Jack and Captain America fought uh, the Vampire, and you had the Human Torch." You're you're, you're hearkening back to those Golden Age uh, characters that when you read when you were a kid, and you think, "This is what I'm going to get." And then page one, and it's really flat colors. And it's kind of cheesy, you know. For a character like the Blazing Skull, I was kind of expecting uh, Baron Blood as a tie-in. Yeah, but yeah. this is like, first of all, where in the first panel is Blazing Skull jumping from? <laughs> He's nowhere near the torch. Did he get dropped out of a plane? And again, I hate being comic book guy. I, I should be able to just enjoy this. But I'm so offended by this sticker that is clearly put on the cover that says Midnight Suns Unlimited, even though it has no connection to any of the Midnight Suns. It's got a shoehorn the size of a Buick. It, it does feel like there was a there was an existing pitch for a blaze like for a, a sort of throwback story like this. Mm-hmm. Nowhere to put it. Midnight Suns Unlimited was ending, and so it could be because uh, this feels like it could have been a three issue miniseries. Yeah. Like if you remember the uh, the Elseworlds DC book uh, JSA Liberty Files, mm-hmm. it's got that kind of vibe, and that I believe was two or three issues. Well, originally. I, I think this the reason this story happened is Marvels. Sure. Marvels came out the year before, and there's a great scene in the first issue of Marvels where. Um, all the Golden Age heroes are, air, are are parachuting out of a plane onto a Nazi camp, and one of the heroes is Blazing Skull. And I feel like a bunch of people wrote in and says, who's this Blazing Skull guy? Is he related to Ghost Rider? We need more information. And like they're like, okay, Alex Ross, you put him in there, you have to do a cover now. <laughs> and let's face it, the, the Blazing Skull, 
not the character, but just a skull that is on fire, is an iconic piece of graffiti, tattoo art. It is woven not only into the Americana, our, our, our American mythos. You can trace it all the way back to probably Aztec drawings, um, fantasy art. Uh, it's an iconic thing. So Blazing Skull obviously predates Ghost Rider the original Ghost Rider, mm -hmm. by a good number of decades, just because of his time in the Invaders. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have an interesting character who basically looks cool, but doesn't really do anything. He's impervious to fire, so he can go up against the flamethrowers that were a staple of World War II mm -hmm. uh, military might. Um, and then later on you give him like super strength, which is like you know the, the bargain basement hero upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, then he can... Turn his skin invisible so that he looks like a walking skeleton. Okay, that's cool, but he's still wearing clothes. Does he also turn... Because I looked into his Wikipedia page. His power <laughs> says it turns his skin invisible, not his clothes. Right. So unless he's going butt naked into Nazi territory, which is kind of scary. Hey, uh, <laughs> you see that? Fritz, Fritz, look at this. It's a naked guy with his skull on fire. He, he heard about the she-wolves of the SS. Oh, I'm <laughs> So, but, again, I don't want to dump on someone's creation, but, you know, uh, uh, but it's it's so obviously shoehorned, like you said, into where they just, they slapped the Midnight Sun sticker onto it. Yeah. Well, I was curious about the character, so I actually looked up his original appearances in the Golden Age. Um, he appears in, like, five issues of Mystic Comics, and he's basically, like... A jack of all trades, like spy character. Mm -hmm. He this the whole reporter thing is an invention of Dan Slott here. Mm -hmm. oh, like okay. I say, I think that's him nodding to Superman because you've got a Lois Lane character, you've yep. got a Jimmy Olsen character, yep. you've got a, a Perry White character. Yeah, um, I mean he's fine. He he he's as fine as any other Golden Cage character. Which... Sure, well that's the, the 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 origin story is aside from the skull part of it. I mean. It's the standard sort of Orientalist superpower mystic thing. It's the shadow. Yeah, right? it, it's, it's also the uh, Kunlun, the um, uh, Iron Fist. Yeah. yeah. You know, honestly, I, I mean, wish I had gone with not making him a reporter because, first of all, that's your standard superhero starting pack because that's where all the information comes in, mm -hmm. so you can respond to something going on. If he was just this jack of all trades who just like hustled side gigs mm -hmm. to, for for. Uh, rent and food, I'd be way more interested in that character uh, rather than, oh, here's Ace Reporter. Yeah, okay, do you know well, how hard a reporter job is? Yeah. <laughs> well, you understand, Golden Age, all characters were either reporters or playboys, so... Mm -hmm. you know, my, first, options. my first exposure to this character, believe it or not, was the Heroclick. Mm -hmm. And this was right when Heroclix was actually naming the powers. Like, yeah, okay, you got impervious, you got toughness, you got super strength. No, they would call it, you're driving me crazy. Or, you know, a catchphrase that the character would uh, use. And so that was my first exposure to this character. I was like, oh, wow, this is really neat. I'll put him on my Daddy Catch, Johnny Blaze team, mm -hmm. you know, with a, a vampire girl in the background. And then, you know, great, I get a whole bunch of flaming skulls and have a nice Halloween theme. Mm -hmm. And so... Imagine my surprise when I get sent this issue and I'm like, okay, this looks really cool. And, oh, oh, cricket, cricket, this is bad. Ghost Rider 45, no. Like, that's blatantly false advertising. It is. It, it, needs, yes. to, it needs a Ghost Rider part just taken off. Go, Midnight Suns 
Even if you did Midnight Suns 45, it still got no connection to the supernatural other than this mystic cult. And there's some very problematic connotations with, oh, white guy goes in, gets yeah. to yeah. Orientalist uh, uh, cult and gains their power. And now he's the white superhero version of it. Yeah. You, you need Jason Aaron to come in and uh, make a connection here, mm-hmm. like tie him into the... Um, Spirit of Vengeance legacy somehow. Right, right. <laughs> um, um, do do the Alan Scott thing, and it's like, really, the power was connected to Oa all along. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I love stories like this. Like, 1930s and 40s, punch Nazis in the face, so Pulp Adventure, are, thing, are my wheelhouse. Both in terms of the visual style of it, and in terms of the tone, the thing it reminded me most of was uh, the Batman-Captain America crossover. Which we loved. Right. It's that same kind of, like, it's a, it's a flashback kind of thing, but with, a, with tongue firmly in cheek, not yeah. taking itself very seriously, not doing, not doing the Roy Thomas Invaders thing, which is yeah. also good, yeah. but, but is playing it straight. Yeah, I love that Dan Slot makes the the sponsor of the radio program rocks on. Right, uh, time. Oh my god, exists. I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> um, that they comment that that uh, his story sounds like it belongs in Timely Comics, not the newspaper. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I want to go to page seventeen. Okay, where they're in the plane. Both of them are in full costume. Yes, mm-hmm. we have an open fire inside of an airplane. Mm-hmm. All right. Obviously, the no smoking signs are off. <laughs> Union Jack is wearing a hat on top of his costume. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. That's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. 100%. No flaws. No notes. Should have ended the comic there. Let, let my imagination run wild. It's just a blazing skull sucking up all the oxygen in a compressed flying tube. Yep. And a fully grown man wearing a Union Jack uniform, wearing a base, wearing what looks like, at first, a pilot's cap. Then when they go to the third, the second panel after that, it looks like a baseball cap. No yep. notes. Perfect. <laughs> it, is, it is wonderful. Um, um, it's worth noting here. Blazing Skull's an idiot. Oh my god, yes he is. <laughs> he, t- he very much plays up the aw shucks, I'm a Yankee in over my head kind of thing. Yes. But he doesn't know he's in over his head. Right. He still thinks he's awesome. Right. And it's only when he says, what's your, you know, all I do is make electric sparks. Uh, really, you're, you're Captain America. Uh, okay, so I guess he's got some gadgets. What's your superpower? I'm impervious to flame. You're what? It's a stupid superpower! Great! <laughs> love it! Sell it! Go for it! I love it to death! It, it is very much Blazing Skull as a Dan Slott character. <laughs> I mean, that, that, like the it's a stupid superpower thing is exactly what someone in Dan Slott's Spider-Man run would shout. Yeah, true. <laughs> but I almost feel like if you look at the acts of the story, all right, the first part of the act is, all right, we create a conflict, then we team up with Union Jack. All right, now we're going to go to the second act. Boom. We're here with the with Ironmonger, but German. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're going to uh, learn about the missile. Uh, a missile gets launched at a uh, robot guy. Nine, nine, nine. And then, boom, everybody goes home. Then it's almost <laughs> like we go into act part three, but part two. Mm-hmm. And now we're having to go, oh, now we're going to the White House and, and uh, running around in the motorcycle. I almost feel like 
they try to cram too much into it. That's what I was yeah. saying. It feels like three separate issues that were sort of pushed into one. You know, when they when they get Ironmonger but German, I kind of felt like that's where they could have ended it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, to be continued. Right. Dun, 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 dun. Fill your tank up with Roxxon! <laughs> <laughs> that being said, how awesome is Destroyer? He, he's pretty cool. Like, despite this, the pinstripe pants. Um, right. He is... That is just a character I've always dug. And he is drawn very coolly here, where, like, the skull appears to be, like, metal. And it's it's fun. It reminds me back to those Charlton Comics characters, yeah. where you have very simple designs, everything's nice, cut, and clean. Which doesn't work with the art cell here, because the art cell's very busy. Yes. Yeah. It's very yeah. busy. It's it, very nice. It, it is of 1995. Yeah. Rather than 1945. <laughs> but, the, yeah, no, I agree with you. The Destroyer costume is very... It's clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of that era. And I wish that the rest of the comic series had done that. Because for the Blazing Skull, who just should be a normal guy who's impervious, for a reporter, he's really cut. I really want to find out what his Pilates <laughs> schedule is. No, no, no gluten. No. <laughs> I mean, it's the same problem I have with, you know, this uh, 100-year-old Holocaust victim uh, who controls uh, metal? Man, he really is cut for a man of his age. What is he doing? You know, I kind of want to see like a more realistic body type. You know, especially for a reporter who basically lives on coffee and whatever he happens to find at the uh, 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 the commissary. But you know, it's minor gripe. But no, he, I, I agree with you. And Very clean. You mentioned this too, and I, I was wondering. Um, Union Jack doesn't have superpowers. At least this version doesn't. He has the sparks, the the, the electrical shocks. So he wasn't like Super Soldier, but Britain. Yeah, no, no. Because my understanding was the original, the the World War One, World War Two one, had no powers whatsoever. Like he had a gun, and he had like whatever spy gear he had, and that was it. That is the I believe that's the case with the World War One version, but I believe the World War Two version did have superpowers. Of okay. Some sort. Because my only knowledge of Union Jack was the one with Spitfire, Baron Blood. I mean, that issue the, the, is the, the, iconic. Yeah. I don't know how I came into it as a kid, but it just ended up in you know as one of the few comics that I had. So I just constantly reread it, and I remember that while the artwork wasn't as good as what we're used to now, it was so representative of the time yeah. that it seemed like a movie in my mind. And I still remember Union Jack just basically his legs pinned under a stalactite, broken. He's just bashing on it, trying to save his daughter. And, you know, it's, it's such a good issue. Oh, we're going to talk about some invaders on this show. We're, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. We've not done any of those issues yet, but it, it's in the works. Yeah, it's oh, it's some good stuff. And, and, and in terms of cool looks, I always liked the Union Jack outfit. Oh, absolutely. It like, is. Like he, he has... Honestly, a better costume than Captain Britain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? You're you're really right because especially for someone who, if someone who doesn't have superpowers, he's going to do a lot of night subterfuge, a lot of reconnaissance missions. He doesn't need to stand out. But when he shows up, you want to know, you want to broadcast to everyone who's kicking your ass. It's the Union Jack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whereas Captain Britain. Is just like, oh, look here, Mr. Fancy Pants. You and your big pirate boots. Oh, come and smash me. <laughs> and that being said, I love both characters. <laughs> yeah, no. Because, you know, they, they cover different niches. Because, like, Union Jack covers the whole British super spy sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Captain Britain covers the whole Arthurian legend sort of thing. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, there's certainly room enough for both in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Um, 
I yeah. So yeah, I, I looked it up while we were talking. Um, James, the father, uh, is just a basic you know super spy kind of guy. The son, Brian, does have like the little electrical bolts he can fire oh, okay. thing. Okay. Yeah. This is Brian here. Is gotcha. it is it super powered stuff or is it I have my I have gadgets that give me the electrical sparks? Um, mm, good question. I know one of them ended up with a derivative of the super soldier serum, but that might have been like a much later one. There have been like four unique. Hey, hey guys, I'm looking through the issue again really quick. Oh my god, he got the power to shoot the sparks after an encounter with Thor. Okay. What? <laughs> Why not? Sure. sure. Yeah. All right. Go. 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 Go for it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that makes about as much sense as anything else. <laughs> I wonder what that kind of what Thor was like. He drinks in. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying, Sean? I was going through the issue and I was like, "Wait, Union Jack doesn't use any of his powers, but it's only again in literally one panel mm-hmm. of the entire comic. It is page number. Oh God, I think this is like yeah, page twelve, where he's like." Gets on top right before uh, uh, Blazing Skull hits him with a lamppost. Yeah. And let guys, if you're not swinging a lamppost in a comic book, do you really even exist? Are you even <laughs> bothering to write the comic if someone with super strength doesn't swing a lamppost on somebody? But yeah, he uses those electrical powers once. Yep. In the entire comic. Yep. It doesn't even. And, he well, and, and that's near the end of his being in the book at all. Yeah. Because like the next scene, they're on the plane, and that's where he. It, that isn't. Oh. Wait. If he doesn't have super strength, how is he swinging that lamppost? I'm pretty sure he has super strength. I pre- yeah, like uh, okay. Fine. We, I think we would literally need a flow chart detailing the time of where he gets the super strength, and I'm willing to bet it does not coincide with where this takes place in history. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they're they're playing fast and loose here with with that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, but you know. We're we're actually getting close to empty here. So <laughs> while Mike, while Sean gives us a refresher, um, we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You realize that's your third drink. Oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> I have been slipping him alcohol during this entire first part of the episode, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is his third drink. He hasn't noticed, <laughs> and I won't notice the next three. I am gone. <laughs> We'll be right back with Godzilla number one after these messages. Do you remember your first comic book? Do you remember the first time you held a cover in your hand and you flipped the pages? You read the adventures of these amazing heroes and you really fell in love with the medium? The first time you bonded a character to a team, to a company, and you knew, yep, I'm in this for life? Well, so do we. So join us on the never-ending reading pile from the Pulp to Pixel podcast network where we proudly don our nostalgia goggles, we dive into our favorite comics, our favorite eras, our favorite characters, our favorite creators, and we just bask in the glory that is being a comic book collector. Come join us and help us chip away at the never-ending reading pile. Godzilla, king of the monsters. Hey kids, look what's coming to our theater. It's alive and it breathes fire. I gotta see that picture. Mightiest of them all, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. More fantastic than any story by Jules Verne. Gigantic in spectacle. A thrilling picture for the whole family, kids and grown-ups alike. See death-defying underwater photography. See scientific miracles wrought before your very eyes. Awesome. Incredible. Unbelievable. A monster that wipes out a city with its flaming breath. (laughs) 
modern science destroy this creature? For the answer, see Godzilla, king of the monsters. Fantastic beyond comprehension. Gripping beyond compare. Astounding beyond belief. See Godzilla, king of the monsters. Hi, I am Sean McGinnis, and we are going to talk about Godzilla. King of the Monsters, now in comic form, first fantastic issue from Toho Productions' famed movie series. The cover for this issue is absolutely iconic. Godzilla stomping over a city as scared white people run in front of him, dropping their cigars, uh, worried about their makeup. Uh, he's breathing fire, not radioactive fire, he's just breathing real fire, but oh, it's, it's great, he's got a bridge just crumpled up in his fist and he's just shrugging off all these attacks and oh hey fun tricks free things mail today money maker x-ray goggles exploding pants wait wait that's a distraction okay the coming god they just marvel wastes no time they know that your time is valuable your money is valuable you don't want plot you want godzilla on the splash page he's just he's green not charcoal gray because i mean this is full color and godzilla's never been green except for godzilla 2000 but that's fine that's fine we are becoming in alaska what's godzilla doing so far north it doesn't matter it's godzilla and right off the first issue within two panels we got a body count (laughs) godzilla is not just oh man i'm glad i managed to get away and whoo that was close no godzilla straight up murders someone within the second page of the issue no he's russ does he yeah oh okay well that shows what i know But it's barely. I mean, I, I don't see all his legs. I mean, there, there are casualties throughout the book. Oh, no, there are. Time. People die in this book. Yeah. <laughs> and, and for a Marvel comic of this time period that is obviously geared towards kids, because let's face it, one of the main characters is a Japanese kid who's basically supposed to be your Ichiro surrogate, your, your world-eye view that, no, Godzilla is the misunderstood monster. Yeah, this, this has a pretty high body count. Um, Godzilla just is going in and terrorizing the neighborhood. And what I love about this, you just don't see this nowadays. You get to see more stuff for stamp collecting, surprise coin packet, karate, <laughs> judo, savate, jujitsu. You can learn martial arts just by the cost of a stamp. Let Joe Wielder build your Betty body for just seven ninety-eight. My God, I could look like that for just seven ninety-eight. Oh wait, we're back to Godzilla, and of course. But wait, I want to learn eighty-four card tricks. <laughs> eighty-four card tricks? We don't have time for eighty-four card tricks. Oh. We're talking about Godzilla. <laughs> so Godzilla's just tearing ass across Sarah Palin's homeland because she can see Russia from her front porch. <laughs> He rips up the oil rig. He sees, like, the, the giant pipeline and thinks it's a snake. So he just decides to uh, uh, start kicking its ass. Dude, you can get your high school diploma. Free $1 million Back cash. Back on track now, Sean. Sean, you're going track him. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it, man. These, cop, these, these advertisements just speak to me. So as guys are whooping ass, guess who's coming to... Is it Spider-Man? No. Is it Thor? No. Is it Captain... It's S.H.I.E.L.D. It's S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> It's the original show. We got the helicarrier. The thing looks like a big bathtub with the uh, the, the helicopter blades. I'm sorry, classic helicarrier. Classic helicarrier. <laughs> we got Dum Dum Duggan. Like we don't even get Nick Fury leading the charge. We're getting Dum Dum Duggan. Boys getting paid for lunch and dinner. <laughs> What's Nick Fury doing? He's chowing on a cigar and he's tra- he's transporting some Japanese people that we don't even know what they're here for yet, but they obviously know something about Gojira. So, okay, now we get everyone, we're going to attack Godzilla in these really, just like, oh, God, I love this. These super space, like, Roombas. That's all that, they're Roombas, 
They're fantastic. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> and you know, okay, more amazing commercials. We're going to skip past them. Uh, Godzilla just swats everyone out of the sky. There is no parachutes. You don't see nothing. No, you know, uh, Dum Dum Duggan, yeah, he gets the parachute out. <laughs> Uh, he talks about how expensive all this stuff is. But no, okay, all, all these airplanes are coming in. Uh, why are they flying so close to Godzilla? It's called ranged artillery, folks. <laughs> why are you getting close enough that Godzilla can not only grab you, like that Duck Duck Deuce game where Godzilla comes out and grabs your spaceship? No, he they fly close enough that he can grab them, tear them apart. Okay, S.H.I.E.L.D. is not doing a good job. So where does this mysterious monster come from? Well, in 1956... Uh, didn't you mean... Didn't you mean 1954? No, in 1956, <laughs> an atomic bomb went off in the Pacific, and it awakened Gojira. It, are, but what about the atomic horrors of World War II and the use of atomic bombs on Japanese civilians? We're not talking about that. We're talking about Marvel Comics. Yeah, and Godzilla uses radioactive breath. It looks like fire, and it's not blue, and it's not steam. Yeah, don't you know atomic power only does good things in Marvel Comics? Like, it, you superpowers. It's almost like Japan has a different experience with atomic power than what Americans do. <laughs> okay, and this is the best part, all right? There's an advertisement for the Godzilla comic that you are reading in your hand <laughs> on page 20. On sale May 3rd. The mightiest of the movie monsters at last in a book of his own. You're holding it in your hand and you're holding a, an advertisement that lets you know you are reading the book. Right before, let the cry ring out, don't succumb, read foam. <laughs> then we get the godzilla You get the letters to the editor page where basically it's just the editor talking. And you get a great shot of Hulk getting stomped on by Godzilla. I love this. It was put into my memory as a young child. It's great. Uh, more superheroes assemble. Another commercial. Oh my God! How many? How much of my comic book is commercials? Okay. Then we finally get. Hey, Shield's got a laser. We're going to shoot it at Godzilla. We get a little bit of philosophizing about Godzilla's place in the universe. No, Shield has a giant laser. We're going to shoot it. Godzilla's mad. He hits it. And more commercials. More commercials. Okay, Godzilla's going to... Oh, no, he's hit the pipeline. Everything's on fire, folks. It's just like the Republicans told us. Godzilla came in and antifoot our BLM all over our oil fields. It's terrible. I don't know what we're going to do. Godzilla knocks over a mountain because he gets tricked into by humans. Apparently, Godzilla's hearing is so awesome that when the humans say, Hey, come over here and get us, he lashes out and knocks over the building, thereby putting out the fire. Oh man, these humans are so resourceful. They really got Shield. Really does great training. Marvel bullpen bulletins. Can you quit interrupting my fun? By God, I am nine years old. Spider Man and Madam Web, Twinkies, and finally we come. Godzilla's wandering off into the sea. We're uh, dealing with the damage and aftermath. Where I'm once again philosophizing about Godzilla's place in the universe, and we have a secret weapon in a briefcase. What could it be? You'll have to turn out new ex- the next episode for Seattle under siege oh and a bodybuilding course and fishing rods and spotting street ball I believe it I believe it that is actually the secret weapon to defeat Godzilla spotting street ball and bodybuilding uh, with Larry Bird and no with Rick Barry and Dr. J hey. the other white guy um, so yeah we wanted to talk about Godzilla on the show for a while yeah we've talked about doing some issues from this run off and on basically since we started doing this show yeah it, it's it's a lot of fun. Like, if I was a Godzilla fan during this period, if I was alive during this period, I would not have been 
uh, dissatisfied with this issue. No. I mean, and and you've, you've joked about the, the dating that's given, the, the 1956 date and, and sort of the, the tweaks to the origin they're making. Mm-hmm. My fan theory has always been that Godzilla Raids Again is canon to the Marvel Universe, but only Godzilla Raids Again. <laughs> and only Godzilla, because Angurus is not mentioned right. at all. Right. All right but so the, when the fact this... that he emerges from ice, that's where they leave him at the end of Godzilla Raids Again, is frozen in ice. This was released May 3rd, 1977. Yeah. And you have to realize, the last Godzilla movie that was produced at this time was Terror of Mechagodzilla, which yeah. by standards of the time was a bomb. Yeah. So much so that they were basically they were tired of Godzilla and they had ended it. During this particular time period, I was 75 minus 72 is, oh my God, I was five years old at the time. <laughs> at this time, local TV stations were broadcasting dubbed, edited versions of Godzilla films, most notably Terror of Mechagodzilla, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, um, Godzilla vs. Megalon, uh, Gigan, uh, uh, local theaters such as right here in Columbia, South Carolina, the Dutch Square Cinema was broadcasting Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, a.k.a. Hedora, um, as their Saturday matinees. So you had some very kid-consumable media being fed in. So it was just a natural thing for Marvel to team up with Toho, and they couldn't use any of the canon, any of his history. They couldn't use any of his villains or allies. And to my knowledge, they could not use that Godzilla was birth of the American attacks on civilians of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, they're very clear in this that it is a joint nation nuclear test. Right. To absolve America of any, like, singular blame. And (laughs) and most notable of Godzilla's design is he looks very similar to the Hanna-Barbera series. Green, anthropomorphic, muscular. His eyes are black, but with a slight red pinpoint glow. And I think that cartoon was maybe the next year. Or maybe even the same year. It was mid mid to late 70s, so they would have lined up. I I feel like there's some corporate synergy happening there. He's he's definitely, believe it or not, less intelligent than the Hanna-Barbera version. He is much more savage. He does have what the Hanna-Barbera version lacks is the maple leaf fins. But the fins do not glow when he activates his very clear flamethrower breath, which has some radioactive properties, but it looks like flames. Yeah. And what his, he is missing, most importantly, as is the Hanna-Barbera version, are the keloid scars that cover Godzilla from head to toe. Viewers, if you do not know, Godzilla does not have scales. He is scarred from head to toe based off of the keloid scars that the Hiroshima and Nagasaki victims bore on their bodies. He is a direct correlation to the suffering of Japan. I'm not going to I'm not the one to talk about whether or not we were justified in using the bombs. That is for another time. I am here to make sure that we do not drop these bombs again and that we do not forget Godzilla's atomic origins. That he, the original 1954 film was a protest film during occupied Japan. They were not allowed to talk about the atomic bombings, but they were allowed to candy coat it in a monster movie. So Marvel has this great property but his skin is smooth. It's got scales on it, little, little details here and there. I think it's a great design. Love to see a figure of it. But it is not representative of the true Godzilla. But you know what? It's good because it gets the kids 
interested in the history. Like, oh, yeah, man, I like this Marvel comics. And it's all we had at the time. Yeah. We didn't have streaming. We didn't have... This was the only comic that we had. We didn't even have the manga that was getting produced in Japan. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have action figures. We had the Shogun Warrior Godzilla yeah. <laughs> that some of us are still to this day chasing down. I have one. Yep, I used right to have. There. I used to have two, and that's not either one of them. I had to go on eBay like a sucker because I was a, <laughs> because as a kid I threw it away like a dumbass. Now he has a tongue that sticks out, right? Um, it's basically a flame tongue, okay. and they would remake this figure for the 2014 where he's got a charcoal gray. Mm-hmm. The tongue is blue, but it only comes out barely an inch, and you just press a button. It doesn't have the lever. And I don't remember if it does a rocket fist or not. I didn't bother buying it because, A, it was twice as expensive as a Shogun Warrior figure out of box. And I was just like, you know what? That's an awful lot of money for a repackaging. <laughs> you mentioned um, the design here. The artist here, I don't really think we mentioned, is Herb Trimpey. Yeah. Of course, of, of Hulk fame. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and so that that he is very good at capturing the devastation of mm-hmm. a green monster Laying waste that to the really side. Make, that makes an incredible <laughs> amount of sense, especially when you have that uh, in the letters to the editor, the Godzilla versus Hulk, and basically Hulk's yeah. just in the footprint, and you just see an arm coming up out of the footprint. <laughs> as Godzilla's <laughs> laughing, looking over his shoulder. Yep. Um, writer is Doug Minch, of course, yep. famous. One of my favorites. Yeah, for uh, uh, Moon Knight. Yep. Um, inker is Jim Mooney, one of the prolific inkers of the era. Letter is John Babcock. Colors. Okay, I, I want to call up Bob, John Babcock for this. First of all, he does a great job on the sound effects. We get tech for every time a button is pushed. <laughs> for the for the ray beams and for the iconic Godzilla roar, which is usually done in Japanese as. It's and we love it. And his breath weapon, whenever he uh, unleashes it, so prop to the letterer. You are my friend. <laughs> Colors is Janice Cohen, and of course, editor is Archie Goodwin. Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned the, what they are and are not allowed to do. They're very much following the Tomb of Dracula model here. Yeah. Like, this is basically Tomb of Dracula with Godzilla substituted for Dracula. Where your title character is technically the antagonist of the book. Yes. Um, and, and you're following all of the various characters affected by or trying to counteract that antagonist. Yes. And the storytelling is very much the Marvel at the time, where everyone says what is going on, even though it's very obvious. Lord! The supply ship! Capsized! Smashed! By a... Uh, a monster! I mean, everyone says what they're doing, and we love it because it's such a beautiful core sample of that time. Yeah. You you mentioned, I guess, they weren't allowed to use a lot of the Godzilla trademarks in this. I guess that explains why she was shooting a laser cannon at him instead of a maser cannon. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, good, good, good observation there. Even though the, the design seems to be inspired by the masers that were yes. showing up in the movies at the time. Yep. Of course... Dum Dum Dugan becomes like the main, I guess, antagonist or hunter of Godzilla in this. And Dum Dum Dugan's great, although there is no way in hell Dum Dum Dugan is saying thumbs in our ears here. <laughs> um, this has obviously been censored. Although, I guess, you know, this is later revealed to be an LMD. Right. So it's just possible he has parental controls on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the most action Dum Dum Dugan has honestly seen 
ever probably since the Howling Commandos. Because even then he's overshadowed by Nick Fury. Yeah. He just absolutely gets to his own squad. You know, you don't he doesn't get any really named characters other than Wu. Right. Um, and who's basically just obviously a character made just for this series. Well, so no, he, he isn't. He goes back. Really? Yeah. He, isn't. he goes back to the 1950s. What? Yes. Yeah. So he's like, what is he, like 90 in these times? So uh, there was a Golden Age Fu Manchu villain, very stereotypical yellow peril racist Asian mm-hmm. villain, called uh, the, Yellow the Yellow Claw. Oh my god. And, <laughs> yes, and, his nemes- oh. and his nemesis was Jimmy Woo. American agent uh, Jimmy Woo. James E. Woo. FBI. Who in the 60s, Jim Steranko would revive as S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Jimmy Woo. Yep. Well, you gotta remember, this is the sliding time scale. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, uh, uh, and I'm gonna quote Movie Bob here because he did the best summation of the sliding time scale. That, you know, when did Galactus uh, attack New York? Uh, a few years ago. When did, <laughs> when, did, when did Ghost Rider come to me? Uh, a few years ago. Right. When did Captain America get frozen? Nice? 1954! Whatever, whatever year it was. That is, a, that is a standard to get stuck in there. Uh, and uh, when did Magneto survive the uh, concentration camp? Uh, hey, look, he's got magnetic powers. Look how buff he is. <laughs> yeah. what, when is Spider-Man in high school? Oh, a few years ago. But he's a teacher now? Oh, a few years ago. And that's what really Marvel excels at, is this sliding time scale. Well, in fact, uh, if, if you've seen any of the fairly recent MCU stuff, Ant-Man and Wasp, the FBI agent, Agent Jimmy Woo, it's, it's this guy. And Man, I feel you? bad. I, yeah. I'm going to have to have my nerd card punched. Yeah. And by the way, what do you mean, like, he is? he was a teacher now, he's a high school... I was only... A, I'm a teacher now, I was only a high school student. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, but no, Jimmy Woo, I, I, I know, James, you had suggested that there was a chance he was showing up so prominently because he's Asian and it's yes. a Godzilla book. Jimmy Woo actually was appearing pretty regularly in the main Nick Fury book at this point. Okay, he was good. he was good. a pretty good. regular good. character among the Shield team. Of course, so I, I think that mostly speaks to the fact that Godzilla becomes the Shield B book. Yeah, like with Nick Fury being the A book. <laughs> And, of course, I know Jimmy Woo, of course, from Agents of Atlas. Right. But, Sean, if you've never read Agents of Atlas, it is Mm. so much fun. Um, It it takes a a bunch of the old sort of Golden Age characters who fell by the wayside. Not Uh, even Golden Age. 1950s. Like, communist punching 1950s Marvel characters. Like, the original alien version of the Vision. Uh, What? uh, Nemorita, I think? Yep. Uh, Yep. Jimmy Woo's in there. The Um, Yellow Claw's in there. The original Marvel Boy. Oh, yeah. So it is a they fly lot around fun. in like a '50s style UFO. All right. Yeah. So I want to talk about our Asian subplot. Yes. All right. So we have three people that Nick Fury is piloting in, and I don't know why Nick Fury is playing chaperone Uber to these people, but yeah. it doesn't matter. All right. We got to get to the plot. So we have Doctor Yuriko Takiguchi, uh, old man, Japanese, gray hair, has a cane. Uh, his assistant, Miss Tamara. Hashiokia, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering these names, um, standard female Asian uh, beauty, and then his grandson, Robert, very American name, Takaguchi. They're from Japan, case you ain't guessed. God damn, Nick, just fuck. <laughs> Shit. I mean, you look at this now. This is the first time I've actually uh, barreled in on this. 
God damn, that's racist. So <laughs> basically, these people are playing the mystical Negro part of the story. They are here to act as Dr. Sarazawa, not the 1954 version, but the 2014 version where he is here to add sort of a, a mystical and moral uh, um, tale to this story to say that Godzilla is a misunderstood monster. We need to study him for science, not attack him. And this is something that will go on through all the issues up to the very end when they're fighting the freaking Avengers. Yeah. I guess we're lucky the kid's name isn't Kenny. Oh, God. What is it that you hate so much about Kenny? No, he's a child of privilege, and the whole world revolves around him and stuff, and he can walk into a restricted maximum security military situation, and they treat him like an adult just because he befriended a stupid old turtle. Yeah, 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 and he never gets into trouble, even though his friendship with Gamera is causing the death of millions. And he skips school whenever he wants to, and he never so much as gets sent to his room. Yeah, and he can walk into any book with his pony pal Pokey, too. Oh, Christ, I think you're thinking of Gumby. Oh. <laughs> Basically, Robert is the person who is championing Godzilla's uh, existence so much that he will literally break down crying when, the, when S.H.I.E.L.D. is going to be shooting at them. And they really are just some of the worst examples of Marvel stereotypes. But, again, these are core samples of the time. Yeah. And I'll say, at least visually, um, Dr. Takaguchi seems to be based at least a little bit on Dr. Yamane from the first two Godzilla Exactly. Movies. Very very much so. I mean, you can definitely draw, even with the black and white footage of the time, you can definitely draw a correlation that... It's almost like he links the comic to the movies, mm -hmm. and they can get away with it. Yeah. Um, it is worth noting that because of rights issues, these comics are no longer canon right. as Godzilla comics. Right. They are still canon. S.H.I.E.L.D. fought a giant green fire-breathing monster. Yes. We know that. <laughs> yes. And Dugan was the person who took point on it. <clears throat> yes. And this comic even gets referenced later in Marvel's Transformer comics. Where S.H.I.E.L.D. is responding to the appearance of the Transformers, mm -hmm. and Nick Fury's like, I swear to God, Dugan, if that, if that fire-breathing lizard's back, I quit. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, S.H.I.E.L.D. would get their asses whooped. They were literally the only people on point during this entire series. Like, you'd get some guest appearances by Marvel superheroes, but they're just not equipped to deal with this. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's kind of a weird twist on the Marvel Universe. You don't usually see a situation like Godzilla where it is so difficult to mount a response. Um, I want to talk about the test because one of the big things that I do with my artwork is I always tie my artwork back to the original two flashes over Japan and the flash over a very unlucky sea boat. Mm -hmm. uh, Hiroshima, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the Casa Bravo incident. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at 1956. Mm -hmm. All right, this is... Uh, very early in the comic, it talks about that there is a ship out in the ocean. As you said, this is a multinational, which would never happen. No, no. All right? Everyone was conducting their own tests. Russia already knew, right when America was making the atomic bomb, Russia already knew about it because they had spies in the project. All right? The France would actually do more nuclear tests than any nation on the planet to the point where everyone was begging them, please stop. Yeah, that's why the and 1998... Movie is a French, French. French. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and even if it was a multinational thing, Japan would not be invited to participate. No. Not be, not, <laughs> I wouldn't even, I would phrase it more that they would not participate. Right. I remember specifically that 
there was a Japanese official who said we should start harvesting our own nuclear atomic stockpiles. And he got mobbed. Like, he physically got attacked by everyone in the room for daring to bring this up. I don't think us as Americans can really appreciate... Like, this was not even their 9-11. This is the standard by which an attack changed the world. Yeah. Um, So we look at this and it says, The ship's mission was ominous one. To conduct a joint nation, bullshit, (laughs) undersea nuclear test. All right, this is going to be representing Operation Castle Bravo. This was a bomb that was dropped from the air. It was supposed to hit a ship, derelict ships that were set in the Bikini Atoll, and it missed. So the bomb goes underwater, throws up all this radioactive vapor. And if you're wondering why you haven't ever seen this, you have. It is the atomic bomb used in both the 1998 TriStar Godzilla film in the opening credits, as well as the 2014 legendary pictures Godzilla film done by Gareth Edwards. They used this test. We have footage of it. I could go on for an hour about this particular test, but I really recommend if it's still available on Amazon, look up a movie called The Bomb. It's not the one on Netflix. It basically tells you what they did to United States soldiers subjecting their own military to this test. So what they're referencing in this Godzilla comic is what I believe Operation Caso Bravo, I'm sorry, Operation Crossroads Baker, as well as a multitude of bombs that were dropped in this bikini atoll that made the atoll uninhabitable. To, to the modern day, right? To this modern... Yeah. Like, they would... Believe it or not, I'm, I'm going to get a little gory here. They would tie livestock, like goats, to the beach... To test the effects of To the test the effects. And you know what they tried to do to get rid of the radiation on these derelict ships that they were testing? They tried to scrub it with chemicals. Everyone got radiation poisoning. These were American soldiers that were sent by their government to die for science... And for America. And sorry if that's very he- a very heavy subject for you guys, but I will never forget where my best friend comes from because I do not want to see him again in my lifetime. But on to that, this is a great comic. The artwork, <laughs> the artwork is just classic Marvel. you got is. flat colors, all right? You're not going to have a lot of shading on here. Your shading is going to be very ink-based, all right? Mm-hmm. But it's clean. You can tell where something ends and where something begins. Mm-hmm. As something as busy as where they talk about Godzilla's first attack on Japan, you've got a lot going on. But you use, with the use of flat colors... Uh, allows a lot of action to take place and you can you don't get lost in it it's not like this the midnight suns issue where it's really hard to tell what's going on yeah it's well drawn you've got good proportions you can tell the emotions that are conveyed by the characters and for something that uses no english and for as in godzilla he doesn't say anything but his facial expressions are great you can tell what he's feeling you get the sense that he is this immortal savage beast from 1954. And, like, just just besides Godzilla, like, the scene where the shield agents are deploying for the bomb of the helicopter. Oh, carrier, that is great. So good. And, and I love that, and this predates, but they look like, like, uh, G.I. Joe real American hero toys. Yeah. They do. They absolutely do. I mean, yeah. they've all got these gas masks on because they're obviously at a high altitude. They, they look very much like those... 
uh, those automatic skateboards that people are balancing on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they got, you know, these control pads that are right underneath their arm. Each one has a gun underneath it. And literally, they... Don't they, they barely get to shoot Godzilla. Yeah. For, you don't even see how they affect Godzilla. He swats them out of the for sky. For some reason, they, yeah. they get right up in his face yeah. instead of aiming from a distance. You know, we we mentioned, like, the body count in this issue. It's obvious. Those guys are dead. Yeah. And, like, there, there's people, no G.I. Joe parachutes. Yeah. And there's a point earlier where, like, he rips apart some... Um, no, later, he rips apart some planes. But also earlier, he stops on a radio shack where a radio operator is trying to get out one last call, distress call... That guy is dead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for a Marvel comic, in a sense, like, we, we're used to, like, your standard Cobra officers getting butchered. We mm-hmm. don't think about those. Those aren't real people. No. There are innocents in here. Mm-hmm. And we're not even talking about the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. There are innocents that get flattened. You don't, there's no gore here. There's no hand sticking up out of the rubble. It doesn't, um, it doesn't dwell on bodies or anything. No, no. But, no. but it is very clear People die in this comic. It is impossible to tell how many people die because there's even a scene in Godzilla's uh, historical uh, backstory where he tears apart an entire ship with his bare hands. He doesn't even hit it with his radioactive breath. So, as a Godzilla fan, how would you? How do you feel about Marvel's treatment of your guy here? Okay, I, I go into this, and I'm going to be going into it in a future video essay. While politics are very important to Godzilla's creation, it is important that you have an entry-level position for kids to get into. This is basically, Godzilla, when it comes right down to it, is Japan's 9-11 as a giant monster. And marketed with direct-to-DVD pricing, collectible, ownable uh, action figures that you can smash together, and we got a new movie coming next year called Godzilla and Kong. But... That stuff is necessary so that the kids go like, man, I really like that. I love this legendary Godzilla. What? You mean there's a whole bunch of Godzilla movies? Let me go back to 1954. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that 1954 oh, feels dark. Well, let's, let's take a look at Shin Gojo. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, let's take... Oh, the Americans did what? It, <laughs> that's why we have this atomic uh, sort of Damocles over our heads is because of this. And while... It is so f- as far removed from the original Godzilla as the Hanna-Barbera cartoon and even the legendary one. Because they, they understand, <clears throat> excuse me, they understand the catnip that us fans love, the references to Castle Bravo, to all the different years that these movies come out. Uh, we love that. It is whitewashed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's very much whitewashed. But it is necessary because the it has to be like the original 54 movie. It was a protest film in occupied Japan to say, please, for God's sake, don't unleash another atomic monster on us. And that's what we kind of need stuff like the Marvel comics to do. Yeah, oh man, X-Men, I love Knife Hands Guy and Black Girl Who Shoots Lightning. What's it, wait a minute, what's it, what's it? Oh, this is the civil rights movement. Yeah. It's candy that covers the medicine that we desperately need. So I say that this is absolutely necessary, and it is. it should be archived. Everyone should enjoy it, but take it for what it is. It's a Marvel comic, almost Disney-fied Godzilla. I am pretty sure it has been reprinted. So there was an essential volume in black and white. Right. Mm-hmm. It's out of print now because they lost their deal with Toho, mm-hmm. but... But it, it's out there. You can find it. But this was not the final Godzilla comic. No. We would Dark Horse yeah. would get a honestly a very excellent series. Uh, 
they're having several I think IDW, IDW now does. IDW. Matt Frank has one of the best ones uh, out that, you know, Godzilla rulers, that basically not only harkens back to the aliens invading, uh, monster slap fights, but it's just, it's really good. And I love that basically it shows there's a market for this stuff. It's entertaining. And this is the stuff that you want for, this is basically Fast and Furious. You turn your brain off, you get entertained. And I will say the the nice thing about the IDW run is uh, they've actually managed to get the rights to the other monsters. Which is excellent because now we're getting, right now with what's being published, our rivals. Mm -hmm. Where you get to see two monsters fight against each other that aren't even from the same timeline or universe. Um, we're talking about you know from the 70s era, the 80s and 90s era, the millennium era, and what's now called the Reiwa era, which mm-hmm. starts with Shin Gojira and includes the Godzilla Singular Point, the Netflix anime trilogy. Um, and they've announced a new movie that's in development. Right. Whatever Toho is planning to produce, and all of these online-only stuff like Godzilla vs. Gigan Rex, mm-hmm. Godzilla vs. Gigan, Godzilla Final Wars vs. Uh, Godzilla Hedorah Final Wars. We are in just, I just want to say, we are in the golden renaissance, not age, a golden renaissance of giant monster films that I never thought I would get to see as a kid. And, and that's feel- on top of things like uh, the Shin Ultraman movie happening and all the other sort of not- Godzilla franchise, but peripheral stuff. And I think you talked to me, when we talked about this, you know, off air, you told me about, you know, as a kid in the 70s, you took what you can get. No, absolutely. We didn't have action figures. We couldn't even import stuff. We didn't have eBay. You know what? I had two Godzilla toys. I had that Shogun Warrior figure, and I had a stuffed Godzilla that my mom made for me by hand that I don't even get to own anymore. It would be Hot Topic... Decades later, with this little puff-cheeked Godzilla that was sold side-by-side with a lighter that was Godzilla-shaped. We just didn't get this stuff. We had to bootleg it. And if we bootlegged it, it was completely untranslated. No subtitles. No dubs. You kids make me sick. (laughs) You get to download it on your fucking phone. But I love it for you. I hate you, and I love you simultaneously that you get to do this. That I have a Criterion box set of the entire Showa era with accurate subtitles on every film. (laughs) And that you get to... It's price to move, price to own, and I can get the action figures with it. My son gets to watch all these movies and have the figures representing the monsters that he'll get to play out on the floor and build his own monster island. By God, I love this time. I hate each and every one of you, but I love that you get to experience this. Because I spent all my adult money on action figures. (laughs) Well, that's a good point for another refill. We'll be right back with... Power Man and Iron Fist, number 79. Sweet Christmas! (laughs) After these messages... In the palace of glittering delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of the amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan, you never know who you meet next. In the palace of glittering delights... Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks, 
and via your podcatcher of choice. From outer space, the famous TARDIS brings Time Lord, Doctor Who, and the amazing Leela, ready to do battle against their mighty enemies, the fearful Cyberman, the giant robot, and one of the deadly Daleks. Whilst Leela covers him, the Doctor reaches the TARDIS in time and disappears to escape from the dark. Doctor Who, Leela, the fearful inhabitants of outer space, and the TARDIS, from Dennis Fisher, fantastic. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our third and final issue for today is... Power Man and Iron Fist. And the day you thought would never come, the day of the dreadlocks. Which actually is not either Iron Fist or Power Man's new haircut. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, volume one, number 79. Uh, Cover date is March 1982. The writer is Joe Duffy. Artist Carrie Gamble, inker Ricardo Vilmonte, letterer Jim Novak, colorist Christy Shiel, Shiel, Christy Shiel, and editor Dennis O'Neill. And in this issue, we open with Luke Cage and Danny Rand in full superhero getup as the heroes for hire, and they have encountered a creepy-looking killer robot, which might be familiar to people who enjoy British science fiction, and. It turns out this is a bait-and-switch, and they are props for a Broadway show called Day of the Dreadlocks, which is apparently some sort of live-stage revival of an old film or TV something or other featuring a character called Professor J.A. Gamble. And the actor from the original version is reprising his role in this uh, Broadway show. And Luke Cage and Iron Fist are there, I guess, to see the show. Yeah. In full costume. In full costume, yes. And so the actor... Bob Diamond, yeah. who apparently is an Oscar winner. Yes, we'll get to that. But yes, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, Academy Award winner Bob Diamond, who had previously played J.A. Gamble on screen and is now reprising the role for stage, invites the Heroes for Hire to a party. Uh, and even though they were just at the Broadway show in full costume, Luke Cage seems annoyed about the idea of going to a party in costume. But that's what they do. Uh, warning for everyone, there's a shockingly large number of blonde white people in this comic. Yes, yes. A whole lot of Oliver Queen lookalikes going around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we cut to uh, backstage a janitor complaining about the stuck-up actor and nobody sort of caring about the, the working people who really make this show happen. And in true 50s science fiction fashion... We don't see what attacks him, but there's a red flashing light and a scream, and he's gone. The next morning, Luke Cage wakes up. I guess at this point in the run, he was living above a 42nd Street movie theater. Yeah, it only showed westerns. Does he only have one set of clothes? Because I'm watching Danny Rand just, like, change clothes all over the place. Right. It seems like Luke Cage always wears the the yellow shirt with the, the silver... Headband. It's called a tiara. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so Luke Cage t- speaks briefly with his friend who runs the theater, whose name, I kid you not, is D.W. Griffith. And meanwhile, Danny Rand is training with Bob Diamond. And Bob expresses concern about the weird goings-on and disappearances happening at the theater. 
and Danny says that they will look into it. So, Although Power Power Man doesn't believe him, right? So so they're, they they meet up with Luke Cage to talk about what's going on and see if the Heroes for Hire can take the case. Luke Cage gets really angry about yeah. about a job being offered to him. Yes, <laughs> um, and is so angry that he takes the uh, w- whatever it is that he's holding, just random statue, a statue, and and squeezes it and but with his bare hands fashions it into the shape of an Oscar. <laughs> Like another great performance. We're, we'll we'll go investigate your publicity stunt. <laughs> right. Um, their secretary points out that they actually do need the money if they're going to make payroll. Yeah. <laughs> and so they take the case. As soon as they arrive at the theater, lasers begin firing at them. Mm-hmm. And bring, 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 bring. Luke Cage tries to investigate because he's the only one of them that's indestructible, but he is not able to find the source of the attack. We cut to later that evening, and Danny Rand is enjoying a private moment with Misty Knight. When Luke Cage arrives with his girlfriend, Harmony. Who we just talked about in an X-Men issue. That's right. That's right. Uh, And there's a brief dispute over who will get to use the apartment. This would be a TMZ moment. (laughs) When suddenly the phone rings, and Bob Diamond says that he is in trouble... That something is going on at the theater. Oh no, they've found me. I don't know how, but they found me. No! And the, and the line disconnects. So Luke Cage and Danny Rand decide that they'll change in the cab, and they rush over to the theater. Ditching their girlfriends behind in the same apartment. Yes. Yeah, um, Misty Knight asks Harmony if she knows how to play gin. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so the heroes Speaking for hire... Speaking gin. Oh, here we go. Come up, come up, come up. Alexa, turn on bar. <laughs> the heroes for hire arrive at the theater where the the dreadlocks are attacking and shooting anything that moves. The heroes for hire try to fight back, but the the numbers are too much. Danny Rand, I believe, hides inside one of the fake prop ones to escape. Now we need to specify these are the dreadlocks, not the dreadnocks right. from GI Joe mythos. This is true. The dreadlocks. Wait, what are dreadnocks? The dreadnoks are, or the dreadnock, dreadlock, dreadnoks. Yes. These are basically Zartan's Australian Mad Max ripoffs for hire that Cobra for some reason keeps on the payroll so that Zartan can keep doing his man of mystery shape changing stuff. Right. Okay. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Iron Fist hides inside one of the prop dreadlocks, but is quickly found out and has to escape. The Heroes for Hire run across the street to escape from the laser blasts, where they see a small bookshop tucked in among the storefronts. They rush inside and are astonished to see that the bookshop is bigger on the inside. Bigger on the the inside? (laughs) Smaller on the outside. And inside that bookshop is a man who introduces himself as the real Professor Gamble. And he is working on an invention that will stop the real dreadlocks that are attacking the theater. Luke Cage is having none of this. <laughs> Luke Cage is like, look, clearly, in every panel, I am tired of these he, stupid-ass we, people. We should clarify, this is Professor Justin Alphonse Gamble. Yes. At your service. Yes. 
J.A. Gamble. Um, Luke Cage is angry about the bookshop being bigger on the inside. He is angry about the dreadlocks being real. Mm -hmm. He is angry about there being a real Professor Gamble. (laughs) And he is especially angry at being caught up in the middle of all this nonsense. (laughs) But... Danny Rand's into it. (laughs) Like, of the two, Danny Rand is the fanboy. Um, He goes along with all of it. He offers the professor more tea at one point. It's great. Um, But meanwhile, uh, the Treadlocks have kidnapped uh, the actor, Bob Diamond, and basically everyone else that was in the theater. Like a rhinestone cowboy. (laughs) And Gamble reveals that the play and presumably the show or movie or whatever that inspired it, were actually written by him. That uh, at a time when he needed a little extra money, he took a chapter of his own personal diary and turned it into a work of fiction. Yep. Never suspecting that it would draw the real dreadlocks to Earth. Because the real dreadlocks are attacking, thinking that Bob Diamond is Professor Gamble. Yep. And they want him to fix their time platform that they used to uh, invade Earth. So Luke Cage and Iron Fist uh, agree to help Dr. Gamble. Iron Fist rushes in first, essentially, to create a distraction. Uh, Luke Cage goes in next. And while they are fighting the dreadlocks, Professor Gamble attaches this invention that he has made to the time platform, which in an instant causes all of the dreadlocks to disappear. And before... The Heroes for Hire can react. Uh, Dr. Gamble, Professor Gamble, has disappeared as well. Legally, I must say, he's not a doctor, he's a professor. (laughs) Uh, Gamble disappears as well, and the bookshop that was bigger on the inside is no longer uh, across the street. I just have to say that what could have resolved this entire conflict and just left with so much less destruction is if they used a masterful stroke of diverting their attention to the good taste of Hostess fruit pies. Two kinds, <laughs> apple and cherry. Those dreadlocks would have gone for the light, tender crust and the real fruit filling. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. We wish we had taste buds. <laughs> Like, very clearly, like, to anyone who doesn't have brain damage, this is clearly a Doctor Who ripoff with the numbers filed off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The the dreadlocks are very much Daleks shouting incinerate instead of exterminate. But they look, they're drawn very much in the 80s Marvel style, and honestly, these would have fit very well in any S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. I mean, that's just how they're drawn. They they look like they could be just some S.H.I.E.L.D. maintenance bots. So, uh, there was a Marvel Doctor Who comic. Yes. Back in the 70s. With the fourth Doctor. With the fourth Doctor. Most of it was reprints mm-hmm. of... Of the British comic. The British comic. There were a few original stories. Right. And there, was some, there were some Marvel premiere issues, I think. Yeah, I Marvel mean, premiere. I clearly remember K-9's Finest Hour um, being... Like, I actually... That was the name of the comic. Mm-hmm. And we were very fortunate to get that sort of stuff because back then, SCETV yeah. was broadcasting this stuff... Maybe, if you're lucky, at 10 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. but more than likely around midnight, and you'd be up till 2 a.m. in the morning to watch these Doctor Who episodes. And because this was the fourth Doctor, you absolutely did. Yeah, this was before sort of the relaunch in the early 2000s. Fourth Doctor was sort of the height of popularity for the mm-hmm. show. 
Yeah, and uh, you're absolutely right. He appeared in Marvel Premiere um, basically the two years prior to this, and then they lost the rights again. Right. So I guess all the Avengers prescribed to him in the Marvel Universe then got <laughs> transferred to J.A. Gamble. Right. Who does reappear. This is not his only appearance in the no. Marvel Universe. Oh, you're kidding me. Um, no. He, he shows up in Avengers Annual number 22. And he shows up in Cable and Deadpool Annual Volume One Number One. Oh, I'm sure Deadpool just had something to say. <laughs> uh, and and the the way they work it out in terms of Marvel continuity is they reveal that he is a rogue former Time Variance Authority officer. Welcome to the Time Variance Authority. A little bit perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely want to say that to frame all of this with. Blonde white savior from Kunlun no. and black exploitation is—it's something, but it is so quintessentially Marvel because this is where Marvel excels. This could have easily been an Avengers cosmic story, mm-hmm. but no, it's taking place on the street. So it is there, therefore very much a Doctor Who story, shot low budget on the streets of England. Yep. Uh, this time in Chicago, probably what Chicago, uh, it's New York, I think. New York in, yeah. Ma- in Manhattan. But it could this could easily be shot on an '80s budget because <laughs> the majority of the uh, finances would have gone into the robots mm-hmm. and figuring out how to get this that amount of spandex onto these two characters. <laughs> there's there's really not a whole lot of special effects to it. So and this is why Marvel excels. They have street level characters that are the glue to all the cosmic, world-ending stuff. Well, I mean, you you talk about these guys being classic 80s monsters. They are very, very similar to the robots from the 1986 classic, Chopping Mall. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Kill Boss! (laughs) Yeah, that was the original title. They put out on all the posters, and in the last minute, they changed the name of the movie... To Chopping Mall. To Chopping Mall, and the poster looked like and, and the idea is that they're this. sort of security <laughs> drones at this 80s shopping mall that go berserk. And this is where I can uh, offer a different insight to, for for the listening audience from these two. I'm 50 years old. So <laughs> when my experience growing up is you went to this corner store to rent VHS tapes. We're talking stuff like Rawhead Rex. Yep. All right. Where, where it was just the most god-awful. <laughs> you couldn't even broadcast this on Saturday evening TV. It's just bad 80s horror flicks. But you ate it up because guess what, folks? This was all that you had. The geekdom that you guys are enjoying today is an absolute cornucopia smorgasbord of uh, proportions you cannot even imagine compared to what we grew up with. That basically this was stuff to laugh at, to do on a low budget. Um, the, the Hellraiser, Rawhead Rex, these Child's Play, Puppet Master. This would have, technically, these robots would have fit in very much in that. And just, you could even swap out the Luke Cage and uh, Iron Fist. And basically some uh, white guy and his wisecracking black t- uh, uh, teammate. Yeah, you've got, it's basically the the... Lethal weapon buddy formula, you know. Like, like that's... you could even leave out the super strength and the kung fu stuff. You just have an abnormally strong black guy and this jack of all trades blonde guy with a cut chest, and maybe he dresses a little different from everybody else. 
And you could literally have done this. You know, honestly, you could have done this as a chopping mall movie. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned Jack of all trades, white guy. For some reason, Iron Fist is a master of ninjutsu here. Right. Right. Which, if you look at Iron Fist's origin, makes absolutely no... has nothing to do with Japan. No. (laughs) No. I mean, it's basically, it's a guy who's really strong in one fist. Right. Yeah, he can kick stuff. I mean, honestly, is is am I am I wrong that basically Iron Fist is he's really strong with one fist when he concentrates really hard. So he he's generally good at martial arts. Like that that's sort of the catch all. Yeah. Not a superpower, but he's good at martial arts. Like he's Snake the Eyes, right? Yeah. But yeah, he he focuses his energy into one hand, and it has superpowers. So yeah. he can punch through stuff like he does in this particular episode. Kathoom! And there's right. Danny Rand on the other side in a classic Marvel pose that could have easily been the cover story. Right. Have you ever seen the cartoon Avengers Earth Mice Heroes? That is a... So- the, the one where uh, Janet Van Dyne is leading the Avengers? That is a solid freaking cartoon. Yes. But they have that one episode where Hank Pym is trying to find who stole his outfit. And he hires... Iron Fist and um, Power Man. We're working with the Avengers. Power Man and Iron Fist working with the Avengers. Kind of exciting. Man, knock that off. And I told you never to call me Power Man, Danny. Oh, I I must have missed that episode. I just remember the opening theme song was an absolute banger. A little emo, but it is a stunning banger. I think you can even see it on Disney Plus. You really gotta yeah, check it out. Because yeah. the Wasp is leading the Avengers. Yeah. And it's not, you, you can't even say, oh, this is a Mary Sue. No, she credibly leads the Avengers, as she has in the past. Yes. Yep, you actually see her character develop through the series. Yeah. I was flying on a horse through space. <laughs> and, and we talked, you talked about the, the sort of pairing of, of Luke Cage and Iron Fist and sort of the, the, applicability of that sort of story structure, it occurred to me reading it that at this point in time in Marvel, Power Man and Iron Fist were kind of filling the same category that the hard-traveling heroes era of Green Lantern and Green, Green Arrow yes, for, yes. for DC. That, that, actually, that whole series was actually very important to my wife because it was something that she connected with a family member who passed away. And that she, we still have that graphic novel because it's really the hard, that hard traveling hero thing. It's very undersold. Yeah, you know, you talk about these cosmic characters. Well, here's very ultra liberal Ollie Queen who recognizes that rich people are garbage because he is rich <laughs> and he is garbage. <laughs> he recognizes they go out across land, and there are some issues in that story that do not stand the test of time. Watching. Oliver Queen in a full Native American headdress talking about his people. It's sure. very uncomfortable, but it is a great core sample of the time. And that's what you guys got to understand, that yes, cancel culture is a thing, but guys, you can learn from this stuff and say, <laughs> hey, if this happened back then, we should enjoy it for what it is, and isn't it great that we don't go through this now? Right. Um, also, I just have to say, Day of the Dreadlocks, Broadway show... People are disappearing. People are dying. Actors are going missing. 
Surely this is the Spider-Man turn off the dark of its era. <laughs> turn off the dark! <laughs> well, I think what this tells us is that musical theater is the root of all evil. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned hard-traveling heroes. It's worth noting that the alias that Professor Gamble uses here, um, Sergius O'Shaughnessy, was the alias used by Denny O'Neill when he would do work originally for DC and Charlton Comics. Right. When he was supposed to be working for Marvel. And, and Denny O'Neill, editor of this book. And so, he definitely yeah. looks like a more buff Oliver Queen. I mean, there's yeah. a, the, with the the goatee and the mustache. Granted, it goes all the way around. The, the, okay. The beard goes all the way around the you're, face. You're, you're talking about Bob Damon. Oh, I'm sorry. Here. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. We need to point out here, there is no way in hell Bob Diamond has won two Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> like, Bob Diamond is a straight kung, kung fu um, exploitation actor here. Right. The, like, the, the only reason he would be a celebrity at all is because he was a white guy doing kung fu at the time. Like, that's all you needed back then. <laughs> like, you guys, you don't understand. Being white is a low bar. <laughs> he, he's like... If Tom Baker was John Saxon. No, <laughs> this is like you told me that, you know, Chuck Norris won two Oscars. Right, right. Like, it, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to any Chuck Norris fans out here from the internet. Chuck Norris is crap. He is. He, he's a bad actor. <laughs> Look, he beat, he got beat by Bruce Lee. Yep. Don't, like, he had his chest hair ripped off in the movie yes. as an actual part of the script. And it took Bruce Lee two times to get the hair off his fingers. <laughs> <sighs> but, yeah, there's no way to bump him with one Oscar. Right. Much less two. Right. Now, for the art style, there's a lot going on, but like Godzilla, there's a lot of scenes where one or two colors are used for an entire panel with a slight uh, uh, color palette change in like maybe one area. Luke Cage and uh, Iron Fist are sneaking along and they're all colored red. Uh, there's a lot of contrast, which, again, for as busy as this comic is, super important. You need for there to be a good flow going from panel to panel, especially for one that has such a batshit story <laughs> going on here as Doctor Who meets Marvel Comics on the streets of New York with <laughs> uh, a racial stereotype and black exploitation character. It's got a lot going on, and when you have this many disparate parts uh, happening at the same time, you need a glue to hold it together, and that's what the art does. And it does a really good job of conveying sort of the overwhelming numbers of the robots. Like, there are plenty of panels where you see six, seven, eight robots all in, in panel attacking, um, so that you never sort of lose track of, of that uh, sort of numbers disparity. And there's, there's definitely some definite artist shortcuts, because one of the big problems with uh, robots is you got a lot of panels that you need to put on a, a mechanical character. You have a lot of detail that needs to go in, so that means shortcuts go on someplace else. And that's where the inker really shines. He does a lot of heavy shadows, mm -hmm. high contrast that allow both the penciler and the colorist some forgiving rooms. Like, Paint it black. <laughs> I want to paint it black. Wow, 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 wow. But it works. It's a great <laughs> shortcut, and you don't notice it until you really dial into that sort of stuff. You really have to be a, a student of this game to really have it stand out. So let's talk a little bit more about Professor Gamble. I'm getting definite 
Patrick Troughton. I, I was vibes. going to say somewhere between Troughton and Pertwee. He's yeah. sort of second and third Doctor. Yeah. Uh, which at the time the current Doctor was uh, Davison, who was the fifth Doctor. Yeah. Even though he looks like an overweight arcade. Yes, yes, he does. I mean, it's basically an overweight arcade with British clothes and a top hat. And did any of the doctors wear a top hat? No. I don't think so. Because um, I think they figured I'd be a little bit too on the nose. Right, right. They, 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 you get to go do a little bit. Like, the TARDIS is obviously a bookshop, which, honestly, that's a great idea mm-hmm. for a... a Genre of comics that are based off of funny pages, based off of a printed media. Having a hero travel around in a uh, bookstore—that's great. That's that's our dream right there. <laughs> like, forget having all these gadgets and stuff. You've got knowledge. The true power. The true power of the nerd is knowledge. Well, you know, as the Tenth Doctor famously said, books—the most dangerous weapons in the universe. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, I think probably the top hat was to evoke the fourth doctor's floppy hat but without making it too on the nose right yeah and make him also super british right okay, so and also the the tool he's working with on uh in the the close-up panel the bottom i forget what page number this is it does look like a sonic it looks like a sonic screwdriver yeah, yeah it looks like page 16 like it looks like an 80s sonic screwdriver yeah now okay so what year did this come out 82 okay mm-hmm. who was the doctor at that time was uh, it tom it was baker the fifth Okay, it was, it was Davison. Yeah. He had only just become the Doctor. Though. Yes, he just regenerated. So the one that was still in people's minds would have been Baker. Yeah. Right, right. And that Especially was, in the U.S. And again, you, when you look at the ephemera of nerd culture back then, where basically everything was taking place in the comic shops and talking about, hey, did you see Doctor Who? Hey, uh, did you pick up the latest issue? This is, for again, for all the disparate parts, you got a lot going on, a lot of different genres, because the Doctor basically could be a cosmic-level character, an Adam Warlock, even. Mm-hmm. But he's basically just kind of Joe Schmo, a little overweight, kind of oh relatable. God, a Jim Starlin Doctor Who? Can you freaking imagine? <laughs> oh, dude. Do you imagine how bad he would just fuck Thanos up? <laughs> like, like, he would literally wander by the, the big scene where all the Avengers and Adam Warlock are strategizing, and he'd come in, like, grab a biscuit, and wander <laughs> off. And, like, by the time they get, all right, everyone, we get ready, oh, Avengers assemble! And just like see Thanos, just like that Peter Griffin was back bent behind his arm, his arm bent behind his back, face off camera, blood everywhere. It just, it, it would be amazing. It'd be but, like, like you, you have all the Infinity Gems except for this one. <laughs> That's not an Infinity Gem. It's a Jolly Rancher. But can you be sure? <laughs> and or, or better yet, he would substitute one of the most important gems. As a jelly baby in the Infinity yep, Garden. Jelly baby, sir. Yep. And then you could have an entire series after that where uh, the, the doctor just goes, I screwed up. This was not the solution to the problem. Avengers, I kind of need your pro- help in fixing something that I may have messed up. Uh, there's a time eater at the end of New York. Uh, <laughs> like, can you imagine the doctor meeting Kang? Right. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, you know, here's what I would do. Echo, and granted, he wasn't alive. He wasn't really the Doctor then. I would love to see the Eccleston Doctor, all right, talking with Kane, just infinite trash talk yeah. back and forth while the Doctor has just like his hands behind his back and he's like literally putting the the uh, pipe from Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla <laughs> together so he can throw it in two opposite directions and just screw up Kang's entire mojo so that when Kang arrives in the time that he's supposed to be in, he's basically three kids in a platypus costume. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or Capaldi's doctor coming into a room with, with 
Kang and Ravana and just pulling his hair out. That's not how time works. That's not how any of this works. Guys, we could literally spend... Like, I, I would love to do this. We could spend an entire episode just based <laughs> off of what a Jim Starlin... Because, like, I have copies of the Quest for the Infinity Gauntlet by Jim Starlin, the two graphic novels, and they are bangers. Yeah. They are absolute bangers. Like, everything you know about the Infinity Gauntlet does not compare to this because it was high concept, philosophy, not very much combat. Just Thanos going, I'm going to get that gem, and he does it. <laughs> or... Or a writer we talked about earlier in the episode actually let Dan Slot write Doctor Who. <laughs> he has a story coming up in one of their upcoming issues. Oh wow! I've got uh, to put that up. It was it was supposed to have come out already, but they delayed it so that it would coincide with the anniversary. Like there is a storyline in Jim, in, sorry, Dan Slot's Spider Man that he openly admits he wrote just because he wanted to write a Doctor Who story. Well, his whole Silver Surfer run is yes. a Doctor Who book. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh god, that that's. God, I had that series. Like, we, for everything that everyone wants to dump on Marvel and dump on Marvel Disney, you guys don't really get to appreciate what we got to experience in those 80s and 90s with the cosmic themes of there was just no combat. There was philosophizing, and you were riveted by it because these characters you were so attached to. And that's why Doctor Who works is because it's not about fighting and ray beams and kung fu even though that's like you know what is it, is it the third doctor who uses martian kung Pertwee. fu yeah, yeah. uses martian kung fu venetian. whatever the hell that is venetian kung fu <laughs> venetian kung fu god damn it, I'm going to have my nerd card revoked oh, I should have kept my mouth shut no so obviously invented by women no <laughs> <laughs> um, but that would be fa- it would be fascinating it would yeah. be fa- a, a, a copyright nightmare Involving yards well, of legal tape, but it you, would be so good. You know, you know, Doctor Who now dis- distribution rights in the U.S. are owned by Disney. Yeah, for for the show at least. Yes, the, the comic fu- is the all, comic is still tied up with I think Titan. Yeah, but all future Doctor Who releases in the United States, as far as TV show goes, will be Disney Plus exclusives. Dude, we literally could watch in the Kang Ultimatum. <laughs> we could or Secret Wars. We could watch some guy. Literally walk on like it wouldn't even be big. Like I still maintain, Battle Angel Alita was in the very first Guardians of the Galaxy movie when the when Quill uh, has the the orb and Gamora knocks it off of him and she knocks over two people and they look like Battle Angel Alita and her boyfriend <laughs> because like her in her player two colors. We could literally watch a Doctor Who just wander off in the background and it wouldn't even be something you got to stop and see or it, it brings the action to the halt. Ah, oh, dude, we live in a, again, it's a golden renaissance of geekdom, and we are well-fed. And I, I do just have to say, with, with, with this issue in particular, I love how unresolved the ending is. Oh, yeah. Like, like Gamble just vanishes. Yeah. And, and nobody, there's no trying to figure out where he went or what happened or, or where the, the dreadlocks went. All this left is over. next, Montenegro's revenge. And I doubt that next issue opens with them reflecting on what happened with Professor Gamble. No. <laughs> why, why do that? There's not enough time. We've got right. Montenegro's revenge. <laughs> this this issue is so much fun. Like, so, thank so you for recommending what, it. I was about to say, what you're saying is thank you for picking it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you for picking it. It was just, just the most fun. Yes. Good stuff. Good stuff. But we are going to go ahead and go to a quick break. 
yet again. Yeah. Although I think if you could film it black coffee, that'd be at <laughs> <laughs> this point. Uh, progressed through the. You, you want some Boss Coffee? Uh, gee, uh, sure. <laughs> this is the this is the brand that they have the Godzilla suit actor uh, uh, do the commercial, or not the actual actor, but they do a whole commercial based off of what the suit actor did went through in the suit, and uh-huh. it's Boss Coffee Flash Brew. <laughs> Well, after that impromptu advertisement, let's go ahead and move, cut some more. We'll come back. I'm and calling you an Uber. Tell you where to find us. <laughs> You're an Uber. After these messages. Do you like spooky movies? Hair-raising tales. Insightful criticism. Judgmental hot takes. Then you're going to love Car Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Don. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. They broke into the mall for the wildest all-night party of their lives. It's dead meat. But you're never alone. In the chopping mall. What's that? Robot blood. Shopping mall. Where shopping costs you an arm and a leg. Welcome back, Tomb Believers. We have yet again come to an end of another episode of Tomb of Ideas. A fantastic episode of Tomb of Ideas. <laughs> Sean, we'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you. It, it has been, been a pleasure hosting you here, guys. I've had so much fun, honestly. And that's not the alcohol talking. Uh, I think I'm sober, but honestly, I've had an absolute blast, and just listening to you guys talk about these issues has really opened my mind. Uh, it, I am not sober, um, so <laughs> to give me the opportunity to do so, why don't you go ahead and tell us, our listeners where they can find you on the internet. Yeah, what, what do you have going on? Uh, where, can, where can they find your stuff? Well, the best way to go, believe it or not, is not my social media. Uh, I still believe in the power of a website. You can find me at Neo, that is the one, backwards, <laughs> neomonsterisland.com. Uh, I used to be known as That Godzilla Guy until Toho found out I existed and said, quit that. Uh, I basically, for the past 22 years, have run a webcomic called Twisted Kaiju Theater, where I take Godzilla toys and create a webcomic around them. And it was, at the very beginning, a very crass, edgelord sort of thing, and then I accidentally somehow came up with plot lines, um, not by choice. Well, that would eventually get me invited to a convention called Icon in Stony Brook, New York. I would meet my future wife there. We would date long distance for two years. She would move down with me for a year. During that time, she would say, Sean, I love your webcomic, but you are wasting your time. You have so much talent. You could be doing artwork. And I thought she was insane. Well, within a year, in 2012... I'm in the Columbia Museum of Art with my first piece of Godzilla-themed artwork, which was Godzilla at the burning of Columbia in the Civil War. And it sold. 
And I have built a career since then creating Godzilla-themed artwork, still using toys, being political, being silly, uh, incorporating them into French Impressionism, Japanese woodblocks, World War II propaganda, Columbia, the- Columbia South Carolina-themed artwork. And it is because of that I'm a father now. It is because of Godzilla I am a father. And I owe him everything. I shudder to think of what I would have been had I not had this passion and been unashamed of it. So if you go to neomonsterisland.com, you can not only see the new webcomic, where I'm much more socially responsible, but still crass as all get out, and, <laughs> and political, because I love making neo-Nazis angry. You can not only see my webcomic, Twisted Kaiser Theater, almost at 300 episodes. You can also see my gallery of artwork, where I've had over... 30 pieces in the Columbia Museum of Art with a 100% sell rate with everything going to the museum to fund future artwork. Yes, I am saying that Godzilla gets the lady. And that's why they call me Dr. Feelgood. But you know, your webcomic is actually how we met, kind of. It is, and... Even though it was very crass, it was very edgelordish, mm-hmm. it garnered me some wisdom, and it ran for 1,800 issues, and I took every single one of them down. Uh, that is 15 years' legacy that I said, you know what? This doesn't represent me. I want to be better. And so in 2019, I started over from scratch. I have uploaded a couple of the webcomics, but we're talking out of 1,800 Maybe I've uploaded 50 of the original stuff. And even then, I'm sometimes reshooting them with my modern technology, using some of the modern monsters. I do humorous stuff. I do political stuff. And I am blessed. I don't hate using that word, but I am blessed to be able to still do this decades later and have old fans come back to me and say, wow, it's really nice to see you didn't turn into a right-wing asshole. <laughs> and isn't that really the case? Where we see that our, our uh, former idols like Bill Maher and all these other people just turn into grifters like Dave Chappelle that's grifting for the right. And you know what? I'm trying to build a better life for my son. I want him to be proud of what I do. And I can't take back what I used to do, some of the, the hurtful things I said and the edgelord style humor, but I can do better and I can try to be an example. But no, really, you're like, your, your comment is kind of like how we became friends because... I was reading this, and I'm like, oh, he mentions Kinko's. There's a Kinko's down the street for me. I'm like, oh, he mentions Columbia. <laughs> um, huh. Let's put two and two together. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, honestly, don't, isn't the world starved for a kaiju-based Kinko's comic where all the <laughs> monsters work at Kinko's? Like, literally, if I, if I could reboot it again... I think that it would be an amazing <laughs> focus, especially in this modern era. Yeah, like, you, you were you were an interesting boss. And in that comic, I want to be played by Gamera. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the first time I encountered your work was... Uh, I, I was in the first production of Evil Dead the Musical that Trustus did. And you were, yes. you were one of the featured artists. And what's funny is they were surprised that I did Evil Dead-themed artwork. I was yeah. like, but that's what you wanted, right? <laughs> I mean, I did the Necronomicon with the Godzilla face from Godz- from King Kong versus Godzilla and made it look like the same flesh-wrapped 
piece. And I went on to sell like a really decent amount of artwork there. There were some experiments that I did that didn't sell, but I didn't care because it, you can learn something in failure. You know, don't just put up your most successful work. Embrace cringe. And let me just cringe is not, oh, I can't, you're, you're posting cringe. No, cringe is you are unable to, uh, to accept how happy I am with what I am doing. Yeah, I make mistakes, but guess what? You learn from those mistakes. And isn't that what being a Jedi is all about? Those that will replace us? Also see early episodes of the same podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, Sean, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, you're always welcome back here on the tomb. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, you listeners, if you want to reach out to us, you can always do so. Our email address is tombofideas at gmail.com. Our Twitter, while it's still there... Right. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. It might not be here there by the time this episode releases, is at Tomb of Ideas. Of course, we now have an Instagram, also at Tomb of Ideas. And our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And, of course... You can find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks ending with an X. Um, along with all the other great shows that are part of the Cinepunks podcasting group. Uh, the flagship show, Cinepunks. Uh, Black Sun Dispatches. The Carnage Report. Uh, Cinema Smorgasbord. And a whole lot more. So check out Cinepunks.com. What you guys are doing is important. I'm really impressed by your professionalism. Your love for this craft. And I really want to see you guys fly. I am absolutely astonished by what you guys do. What you do is important. Is he recording another podcast right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate that. We really do. We, we, we just hope that people enjoy what we're putting out there. All right, folks. Until next time, Tomb Believers. Bye-bye. Bye. Go, go, Godzilla! <laughs> You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Lovers, Excelsior! <laughs>